Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Plato's Dialogue, Protagoras, Part 4. Protagoras continues his discourse with Socrates. But why, then, do the sons of good fathers often turn out ill? There is nothing very wonderful in this, for, as I have been saying, the existence of a state implies that virtue is not any man's private possession. If so, and nothing can be truer, then I will further ask you to imagine, as an illustration, some other pursuit or branch of knowledge which may be assumed equally to be the condition of the existence of a state. Suppose that there could be no state unless we were all flute players, as far as each had the capacity, and everybody was freely teaching everybody the art, both in private and public, and reproving the bad player as freely and openly as every man now teaches justice and the laws, not concealing them as he would conceal the other arts, but imparting them, for all of us have a mutual interest in the justice and virtue of one another, and this is the reason why everyone is so ready to teach justice and the laws. Suppose, I say, that there were the same readiness and liberality among us in teaching one another flute-playing. Do you imagine, Socrates, that the sons of good flute-players would be more likely to be good than the sons of bad ones? I think not. Would not their sons grow up to be distinguished or undistinguished according to their own natural capacities as flute-players, and the son of a good player would often turn out to be a bad one? and the son of a bad player, to be a good one. All flute players would be good enough in comparison of those who were ignorant and unacquainted with the art of flute playing. In like manner, I would have you consider that he who appears to you to be the worst of those who have been brought up in laws and humanities would appear to be a just man and a master of justice if he were to be compared with men who had no education or courts of justice or laws or any restraints upon them which compelled them to practice virtue. With the savages, for example, whom the poet Pherecrates exhibited on the stage at the last year's Linnaean festival. If you were living among men such as the man-haters in his chorus, you would be only too glad to meet with Euripides and Fernandus, and you would sorrowfully long to revisit the rascality of this part of the world. You, Socrates, are discontented. And why? because all men are teachers of virtue, each one according to his ability. And you say, where are the teachers? You might as well ask, who teaches Greek? For of that too there will not be any teachers found. Or you might ask, who is to teach the sons of our artisans this same art which they have learned of their fathers? He and his fellow workmen have taught them to the best of their ability. But who will carry them further in their arts? And you would certainly have a difficulty, Socrates, in finding a teacher of them. But there would be no difficulty in finding a teacher of those who are wholly ignorant. And this is true of virtue or of anything else. If a man is better able than we are to promote virtue ever so little, we must be content with the result. A teacher of this sort I believe myself to be, and above all other men to have the knowledge which makes a man noble and good and I give my pupils their money's worth, and even more, as they themselves confess. And therefore I have introduced the following mode of payment. 
When a man has been my pupil, if he likes, he pays my price. But there is no compulsion. And if he does not like, he has only to go into a temple and take an oath of the value of the instructions, and he pays no more than he declares to be their value. Such is my apologue, Socrates, and such is the argument by which I endeavor to show that virtue may be taught, and that this is the opinion of the Athenians. And I have also attempted to show that you are not to wonder at good fathers having bad sons, or at good sons having bad fathers, of which the sons of Polycletus afford an example, who are the companions of our friends here, Paralus and Xanthippus, but are nothing in comparison with their father. And this is true of the sons of many other artists. And yet I ought not to say the same of Paralus and Xanthippus themselves, for they are young, and there is still hope of them. Protagoras ended, and, in my ear, so charming left his voice that I the while thought him still speaking, still stood fixed to hear. At length, when the truth dawned upon me that he had really finished, not without difficulty I began to collect myself, and looking at Hippocrates, I said to him, O son of Apollodorus, how deeply grateful I am to you for having brought me hither. I would not have missed the speech of Protagoras for a great deal, for I used to imagine that no human care could make men good, but I know better now. Yet I have still one very small difficulty, which I am sure that Protagoras will easily explain, as he has already explained so much. If a man were to go and consult Pericles, or any of our great speakers about these matters, he might perhaps hear as fine a discourse. But then, when one has a question to ask of any of them, like books, they can neither answer nor ask. And if anyone challenges the least particular of their speech, they go ringing on in a long harangue, like brazen pots, which, when they are struck, continue to sound unless someone puts his hand upon them. Whereas our friend Protagoras can not only make a good speech, as he has already shown, but when he is asked a question, he can answer briefly. And when he asks, he will wait and hear the answer. And this is a very rare gift. Now, I, Protagoras, want to ask of you a little question, which, if you will only answer, I shall be quite satisfied. You were saying that virtue can be taught. That I will take upon your authority, and there is no one to whom I am more ready to trust. But I marvel at one thing, about which I would like to have my mind set at rest. You are speaking of Zeus sending justice and reverence to men. And several times while you were speaking, justice and temperance and holiness and all these qualities were described by you as if together they made up virtue. Now, I want you to tell me truly whether virtue is one whole, of which justice and temperance and holiness are parts, or whether all these are only the names of one and the same thing. That is the doubt which still lingers in my mind. There is no difficulty, Socrates, in answering that the qualities of which you are speaking are the parts of virtue, which is one. And are they parts, I said, in the same sense in which mouth, nose, and eyes, and ears are the parts of a face? Or are they like the parts of gold, which differ from the whole and from one another only in being larger or smaller? I should say that they differed, Socrates, in the first way, 
They are related to one another as the parts of a face are related to the whole face. And do men have some one part and some another part of virtue? Or if a man has one part, must he also have all the others? By no means, he said, for many a man is brave and not just, or just and not wise. You would deny, then, that courage and wisdom are also parts of virtue? Most undoubtedly they are, he answered, and wisdom is the noblest of the parts. And they are all different from one another? I said. Yes. And has each of them a distinct function like the parts of the face? The eye, for example, is not like the ear, and has not the same functions, and the other parts are none of them like one another, either in their functions or in any other way. I want to know whether the comparison holds concerning the parts of virtue. Do they also differ from one another in themselves and in their functions? For that is clearly what the simile would imply. Yes, Socrates, you are right in supposing that they differ. Then, I said, no other part of virtue is like knowledge, or like justice, or like courage, or like temperance, or like holiness. No, he answered. Well then, I said, suppose that you and I inquire into their natures. And first, you would agree with me that justice is of the nature of a thing, would you not? That is my opinion. Would it not be yours also? Mine also, he said. And suppose that someone were to ask us, saying, O Protagoras, and you, Socrates, what about this thing which you were calling justice? Is it just or unjust? And I were to answer, just. Would you vote with me or against me? With you, he said. Thereupon I should answer to him who asked me that justice is of the nature of the just. Would not you? Yes, he said. And suppose that he went on to say, Well now, is there also such a thing as holiness? We should answer yes, if I am not mistaken. Yes, he said. Which you would also acknowledge to be a thing. Should we not say so? He assented. And is this a sort of thing which is of the nature of the holy or of the nature of the unholy? I should be angry at his putting such a question and should say, Peace, man! Nothing can be holy if holiness is not holy. What would you say? Would you not answer in the same way? Certainly, he said. And then after this, suppose that he came and asked us, What were you saying just now? Perhaps I may not have heard you rightly, but you seemed to me to be saying that the parts of virtue were not the same as one another. I should reply, You certainly heard that said, but not, as you imagine, by me, for I only asked the question. Protagoras gave the answer. And suppose that he turned to you and said, Is this true, Protagoras? And do you maintain that one part of virtue is unlike another? And is this your position? How would you answer him? I could not help acknowledging the truth of what he said, Socrates. Well then, Protagoras, we will assume this. And now supposing that he proceeded to say further, Then holiness is not of the nature of justice, nor justice of the nature of holiness, but of the nature of unholiness. And holiness is of the nature of the not just, and therefore of the unjust, and the unjust is the unholy.
How shall we answer him? I should certainly answer him on my own behalf that justice is holy, and that holiness is just. And I would say in like manner on your behalf also, if you would allow me, that justice is either the same with holiness or very nearly the same. And above all, I would assert that justice is like holiness, and holiness is like justice. And I wish that you would tell me whether I may be permitted to give this answer on your behalf, and whether you would agree with me. He replied, I cannot simply agree, Socrates, to the proposition that justice is holy, and that holiness is just, for there appears to me to be a difference between them. But what matter? If you please, I please. And let us assume, if you will, that justice is holy and that holiness is just. Pardon me, I replied. I do not want this if you wish or if you will sort of conclusion to be proven, but I want you and me to be proven. I mean to say that the conclusion will be best proven if there be no if. Well, he said. I admit that justice bears a resemblance to holiness, for there is always some point of view in which everything is like every other thing. White is in a certain way like black, and hard is like soft, and the most extreme opposites have some qualities in common. Even the parts of the face, which, as we were saying before, are distinct and have different functions, are still in a certain point of view similar and one of them is like another of them. And you may prove that they are like one another on the same principles that all things are like one another. And yet things which are like in some particular ought not to be called alike, nor things which are unlike in some particular, however slight, unlike. And do you think, I said in a tone of surprise, that justice and holiness have but a small degree of likeness? Certainly not, any more than I agree with what I understand to be your view. Well, I said, as you appear to have a difficulty about this, let us take another of the examples which you mentioned instead. Do you admit the existence of folly? I do. And is not wisdom the very opposite of folly? That is true, he said. And when men act rightly, and advantageously, they seem to you to be temperate? Yes, he said. And temperance makes them temperate? Certainly. And they who do not act rightly, act foolishly, and in acting thus, are not temperate? I agree, he said. Then to act foolishly is the opposite of acting temperately? He assented. And foolish actions are done by folly and temperate actions by temperance? He agreed. And that is done strongly which is done by strength, and that which is weakly done by weakness? He assented. And that which is done with swiftness is done swiftly, and that which is done with slowness, slowly? He assented again. And that which is done in the same manner is done by the same, and that which is done in an opposite manner by the opposite? He agreed. Once more, I said, is there anything beautiful? Yes. To which the only opposite is the ugly? There is no other. 
And is there anything good? There is. To which the only opposite is the evil? There is no other. And there is the acute in sound. True. To which the only opposite is the grave. There is no other, he said, but that. Then every opposite has one opposite only, and no more? He assented. Then now, I said, let us recapitulate our admissions. First of all, we admitted that everything has one opposite and not more than one. We did so. And we admitted also that what was done in opposite ways was done by opposites. Yes. And that which was done foolishly, as we further admitted, was done in the opposite way to that which was done temperately. Yes. And that which was done temperately was done by temperance, and that which was done foolishly by folly. He agreed. And that which is done in opposite ways is done by opposites? Yes. And one thing is done by temperance, and quite another thing by folly? Yes. And in opposite ways? Certainly. And therefore by opposites. Then folly is the opposite of temperance? Clearly. And do you remember that folly has already been acknowledged by us to be the opposite of wisdom? He assented. And we said that everything has only one opposite? Yes. Then, Protagoras, which of the two assertions shall we renounce? One says that everything has but one opposite. The other, that wisdom is distinct from temperance, and that both of them are parts of virtue, and that they are not only distinct, but dissimilar, both in themselves and in their functions, like the parts of a face. Which of these two assertions shall we renounce? For both of them together are certainly not in harmony. They do not accord or agree. For how can they be said to agree if everything is assumed to have only one opposite, and not more than one? And yet folly, which is one, has clearly the two opposites, wisdom and temperance. Is not that true, Protagoras? What else would you say? He assented, but with great reluctance. Then temperance and wisdom are the same, as before justice and holiness appeared to us to be nearly the same. And now, Protagoras, I said, we must finish the enquiry and not faint. Do you think that an unjust man can be temperate in his injustice? I should be ashamed, Socrates, he said, to acknowledge this, which nevertheless many may be found to assert. And shall I argue with them? or with you, I replied. I would rather, he said, that you should argue with the many first, if you will. Whichever you please, if you will only answer me and say whether you are of their opinion or not. My object is to test the validity of the argument, and yet the result may be that I who ask, and you who answer, may both be put on our trial. Tis the gift to be simple, tis the gift to be free, tis the gift to come down where we ought to be, and when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, 
turning, we come round right. <laughs>